Today's Medical Grand Rounds is part of the 2021 Goldman Berlin Lectureship in Palliative Medicine, which is named for two Providence St. Vincent's Medical Center physicians who distinguish themselves in excellent whole person care, which we now know as palliative care. The lectureship has been sustained through the years through the generous donations of both friends and family of the Goldman Berlin families and for the Center of Ethics. We are being joined virtually by Dr. John Berlin this morning. A special welcome to him and a word of gratitude for this opportunity. Thank you, John. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Sunita Puri. Dr. Puri has a wonderful, impressive educational background. She attended Yale University where she earned her Bachelor of Arts in, in Cultural Anthropology. She then went on to St. Anthony's at Oxford and earned a Master in Arts with a focus of modern history in Southern Asia. This led her on to UC Berkeley and UCSF where she did a joint medical program earning a Master's in Science as well as a medical degree. She then took an internship and residency at UCSF Medical Center, which I think is probably her most impressive feat because she got stuck with me as a co-intern and resident. Now, there are a lot of personal and professional stories I could share about Dr. Puri, and they would all highlight the incredible sense of humor she has, the incredible compassion and um, dedication to her patients, and her unwavering support to provide the utmost ethical and quality care to patients, both when they're living well and when they're dying. I learned a lot from Dr. Puri when I was her co-intern and resident, and I continue to learn a lot from her today. Her career has been remarkable, and she now serves as the medical director of palliative medicine at Keck Hospital and the Norris Cancer Center at the University of Southern California, where she also serves as the chair of ethics committee. Sunita is the author of That Good Night, Life in Medicine in the 11th Hour, an acclaimed literary memoir examining her journey to the practice of palliative medicine and her quest to help her patients and their families redefine what it means to live and die well in the face of serious illness. Sunita received writing residencies at the McDowell Colony, UCross Foundation, and the Mesa Refuge, and her book has been featured in The Atlantic, People Magazine, NPR, PBS, The Guardian, Forbes, and Spirituality and Health, among many other places. She is the recipient of a Rhodes Scholarship. Her writing has appeared in The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, Slate, and JAMA. In 2018, she was awarded the Etz Chaim Tree of Life Award from the USC School of Medicine, awarded annually to a member of the faculty who in the eyes of the campus community models and provides humanistic and compassionate care. And with that, it is my distinguished honor to welcome Dr. Sunita Puri. Thank you so much, Dan, for those incredibly kind comments and um, I am just really honored to be here with all of you today. I think it's a very special honor to be invited to speak in the memory of a distinguished physician and to one of the distinguished physicians who's part of this, Dr. Berland, who's in the audience today. And I'm very grateful to the team at the Ethics Center, especially Kelsey and Kevin, um, for helping to make this possible. and particularly for helping me through some of the technical difficulties that came up in our tech rehearsal last week. 
So with that, I am here to speak with you today about reclaiming language to reclaim the practice of medicine. Notes from an accidental linguist. Next slide, please. I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest, but I do want to give you fair warning that I have a very talkative German Shepherd and a very talkative tabby cat, and both are in the room with me. So if they become too talkative, I'm going to pause and let them out of the room. Next slide, please. So what I hope to do today is to go through with you about the importance of language and communication in medical practice to explore some best practices around communication between and among not only patients and families, but clinicians in high stakes situations, including challenging family meetings. And to figure out how we can use language a bit more deftly to discuss prognosis, treatment plans, and importantly, the limits of both medicine and the human body. Next slide, please. I'm quite sure that in Oregon in particular, you in the audience have a very good understanding of palliative care, but I wanted to start with framing this lecture through what palliative care is and does. So in 1980, the World Health Organization came up with this definition of palliative care, which is described as an approach that improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing the problems associated with life-threatening illness through the prevention and relief of suffering by means of early identification and impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. Next slide, please. So what does palliative medicine do? Practically, as the WHO statement suggested, we are a team-based approach to the alleviation of suffering. This means that we work Usually teams are composed of physicians, nurses or nurse practitioners, social workers, chaplaincy, and sometimes pharmacists, art and music therapists, and others. And we seek to treat this concept of total pain, which means that spiritual, physical, existential, and emotional pain and suffering all kind of come together in the treatment of our patients, which is why we need so many different types of expertise to achieve that goal. And we treat symptoms like pain, shortness of breath, nausea and vomiting, anxiety, depression, insomnia. And we also very importantly focus on goals of care conversations, which I'm gonna get into. Importantly, palliative medicine is available to all patients, regardless of their disease stage or diagnosis. And it can be provided right alongside curative treatments. And we really take it seriously that we work alongside the other teams. We're generally available as inpatient consultation clinics and some home-based services. And when I think about what we do, especially when we're talking to patients and families, is we seek to widen the lens on the totality of someone's health and their life. So what I typically do to kind of explain this to the trainees I work with is, when we're in training, especially in medicine, we're kind of like a bird on a tree branch where we see everything immediately around us and the immediate needs are our focus. 
But in palliative medicine, I try to be the bird on the mountain that's looking down on the scene and assessing what is the whole landscape of somebody's disease and life and which paths are available to them in the forest below. Next slide, please. I really like this model from the American Heart Association that shows that the integration of palliative medicine from the time that someone receives a serious diagnosis is really the new standard of care in many fields. And the reason for that is if we're involved from the beginning, we can see people through their treatment, attend to their quality of life, and we know that when people's symptoms are well controlled, they tend to tolerate especially very tough and harsh treatments better. And they also live better. And as time goes on, when someone's living with a life-limiting illness, the ratio of palliative medicine's involvement tends to go up. And we're talking with people throughout that time about what's important to them at the first point of their diagnosis and what might change along the line. And then we have a way of transitioning compassionately to hospice care when we have been a part of that journey. And very importantly, hospice provides free bereavement services for, pati for patients' families. And that's really our way of taking care of the family as well as the patient after the patient dies. Next slide, please. There's a number of impacts of palliative medicine consultations. And the really big thing we do is to align a plan of care with what's important to a patient in the context of their life. And when we do that, we notice benefits like reducing non-beneficial or lengthy ICU stays, stopping costly interventions that may not actually change a plan that meets a patient's goals. Very importantly, we can initiate symptom-focused treatments so that people are not suffering as they get their treatments. And then, importantly, especially when we have these conversations early, we can prevent non-beneficial interventions that don't align with the patient's goals. Next slide, please. These criteria come from a paper by Diane Meyer um, and one of her colleagues, and these are just suggested criteria, and they're very limited. So primary consult criteria, I often teach that if you, the surprise question is one of the most important questions um, that we can ask ourselves when we're seeing somebody. So on admission to the hospital, if you know the ICU fellow would not be surprised if the patient died within 12 months, that's a reason to A, do a full palliative assessment on their own to the extent of their abilities, and B, to call our service. If you're in the MICU for seven or more days, that's generally a trigger criteria to give us a call and at least run the case by us. And obviously difficult to control physical or psychological symptoms. Medical candidacy criteria, so things like awaiting or being ineligible for a solid organ transplant, new diagnoses of incurable diseases like cancer, heart failure, emphysema, and so forth, and being a potential candidate for things like, especially feeding tubes and trachs in neurologic patients, CRRT when somebody has a, a bunch of other problems going on, 
LVADs and AICDs and ECMO, and even bone marrow transplants. And when patients and families have needs like lack of clarity about goals, if they have emotional and spiritual distress, or if they request palliative or hospice, then certainly that's a reason to call us. And again, these are very kind of general criteria. There's much more specific trigger criteria in different subspecialties. Next slide, please. And very briefly to touch on the relationship between palliative medicine and hospice, I usually, when I'm doing this live, I ask people to raise their hands if they've ever been confused about the difference. And most hands in the audience go up, though I think in Oregon, again, my impression of the state is that all of you have a very good understanding of these things. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Um, so I think of hospice as a type of palliative care in the last six months of life. And what that means is that we're still paying attention to things like symptom management and goals of care and supporting the family, but we're doing that in the home or in nursing homes or in some freestanding hospice facilities. And whereas palliative care is available at any point in someone's illness, hospice is really a time where we're moving away from treatments that focus on the disease and really refocusing on treating the ways the disease affects the person's life. Next slide, please. So the bulk of our conversation today is really gonna be about communication. And I like this quote from Susan Block, who's a prominent figure in our field. And she says that a family meeting is a procedure and it requires no less skill than performing an operation. And when I read that quote years ago, a lot of things started to make sense to me. I read it at a time when I was in my residency messing up a tremendous number of conversations because I didn't know how to have them and I wasn't being formally taught. I was being formally taught and supervised doing central lines and paracenteses and so forth, but this felt like a big gap in my education and one that caused me a lot of distress. When I think about goals of care conversations, in my training, I really did them when there was kind of a point of crisis, particularly in the ICU. But now what I try to make sure people understand is that goals should be assessed early and often and should be an ongoing conversation, not a one-time sort of thing. And talking about goals, they exist in a particular context, not a vacuum. And so much of the success of a conversation and really getting informed decision-making from a patient and family means painting the context very, very precisely. And when we can do that, we can shift from, what do you want me to do for you? Like, do you want CPR? Do you want to be intubated? Shifting away from those questions to, Based on what I'm hearing you tell me is important to you, here's what I suggest. Next slide, please. So what does goals of care mean? It's kind of a euphemistic phrase, and when people hear it, they're a little confused. So I think of it as the sharing of in response to information, often challenging information, explaining a medical context and asking for understanding and input, setting expectations, 
And it's kind of a marriage of fact, significance, and recommendations. And I'm going to get into what I mean by that shortly. Next slide, please. Goals of care conversations take many forms. I think, again, when I look back on my training, I had these discussions in moments of crisis, usually when someone was near the end of life. But the language that we're going to talk about and the type of conversations we have can be used in a number of settings where you're telling somebody news or having a conversation about a situation that is life altering. Doesn't necessarily need to be life ending. So, for example, in my training, I had a patient who was a baker and who was diabetic and his diabetes was getting worse, even though he was taking his meds and doing everything he could to control his blood sugar. And ultimately we had to put him on insulin. And that was a big deal to him, both because of his profession and the ways that it being insulin dependent interfered with his life and day-to-day -day work. A woman who has gone for, undergone four cycles of IVF and suffered a pregnancy loss. And you're talking to her about that and what it means and how it's gonna influence what she wants for herself moving forward. A teenage basketball player diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and cannot can no longer play high intensity sports. These are moments that are not life ending, but they're life changing. And so how we talk about that is, is crucial. There is a difference between medical updates and goals of care. So I'll sometimes hear teams tell me, I talked, I talked extensively with the patient and family. And when I ask them to really explain to me what that means, a lot of what they say is that they provided essentially updates. So how is somebody doing on the ventilator? How are they responding to chemotherapy? But that's different from eliciting goals and values and marrying that to what somebody is going through medically. There's also a difference between early and later goals of care conversations. I've noticed that a lot of times when I used to have these discussions in the ICU, I would ask things like, what's important to you and what do you hope for? And sometimes those questions were leading questions that had no change, that did not impact the plan because it was already too late for our plan to change based on somebody what somebody would want. And there's a role for conversation guides, such as the serious illness conversation guide, which I'm going to talk a bit about. But part of the art of the conversation is that these give you questions to start the conversation, but some of the art is in navigating the responses to those questions. Next slide, please. So I want to throw out some of the common phrases that I hear and perhaps you've heard. There is still hope. She's a real fighter. Look at how much she's lived through and she's still going strong. I will do everything possible to save your life. He is pretty stable right now. I would say he's doing better. And when we use words like hope, miracle, fighter, everything, stable, prognosis, treatable, better, saving a life, and passing, these are elastic terms. And so when someone says he's stable right now, what does stable mean if you're on three forms of life support in the ICU versus being treated for a, pneumo a walking pneumonia on the floor? 
And so really kind of mining those terms and being clear about what you mean and asking others to be clear about what they mean when they say, my goal is to do everything because I'm a fighter. Instead of moving away from those words, what I can, what I hope to show you is how do we move towards those words and excavate their meaning? Next slide, please. So I want to run through a case with you. Um, and a fair warning, I, I do need audience participation at various points here. So this is a patient that is a real person, and I have disguised a lot of the identifying information and changed her name. But this is Ms. Angel. She's 58. She's a retired English teacher with hypertension, osteoporosis, and major depressive disorder who's been on a stable dose of Lexapro, and you're seeing her in your primary care clinic. She has a new diagnosis of metastatic triple negative breast cancer, which has moved to her liver, lungs, and spine. You've been seeing, you've been her doctor for five years, and this is your first appointment with her after she'd been hospitalized for severe back pain. The workup revealed this diagnosis, and she's undergone palliative radiation to her spine and establishment of a pain medicine regimen. Next slide, please. So when we think about seeing this person in a non-acute setting, having their clarity of mind and thinking about what they would want for themselves at the time of this new diagnosis is so important. Part of what it means to do these conversations early means assessing their understanding of their disease and treatment options and prognosis, but also very importantly, doing advanced care planning. So identifying who would their healthcare representative be. If they got to the point where they needed life support, what might they think about that? Or very early on, encouraging them to think about these things. This is the time for open-ended questions about quality of life concerns, fears, hopes. And these outpatient discussions, I would say, are even more important during COVID because we're not out of this pandemic and people when they have a relationship with an outpatient provider, that relationship can be leveraged to have these discussions before the point of crisis. Looping back to other medical team members and sharing the outcomes of these early discussions and setting expectations, which is a point I'm gonna keep coming back to. So next slide, please. So the serious illness conversation guide offers some really good broad, open-ended questions. And some of what I have learned is that framing the need for the conversation is very important. So many people I'm caring for live with a serious illness like breast cancer that can worsen quickly. And it's part of my practice to discuss what that might look like and hear from you what quality of life matters so we can make the best medical decisions together moving forward. What are your most important goals if your health situation worsens? Who and what matters to you in your life? What are your biggest fears and worries and what gives you strength? What abilities are so critical to your life that you can't imagine living without them? And I think very importantly, we're in this together. Next slide, please. So Ms. Angel tells you, I thought I threw my back out from lifting boxes. 
I still can't comprehend what all this means. I know that chemo and radiation are part of the deal, but my mind is overwhelmed. Her worries and hopes. I want to do whatever I can do to be cured. The oncologist told me this is a very treatable cancer. You know me, I'm a fighter and I've been through a lot in my life. So I see this as another obstacle, but I can make it through. I just want to go back to gardening and bicycling and going to the beach. In terms of her healthcare proxy, she said, I think my husband can do it, but honestly, I don't think we're going to end up in these sorts of situations, so we can cross that bridge when we get there. Next slide, please. So very briefly, anybody who's willing to share in the chat, what would you want to clarify if you had this sort of conversation and heard those answers? I'm not sure if anybody is writing anything. Um, Kevin, do you see anything? We'll go ahead and see what folks uh, type into the Q&A field here and we can release some of those uh, into the group. Thanks, Dr. Perry. Of course. And as we're waiting for, for, some, for some feedback and input, Kevin, if you heard this conversation, what would you think would be important to clarify? Yeah, I sense uh, in a case like this, it's hard not to come with uh, a lot of the other ICU situations we deal with uh, that, that kind of uh, go in directions that maybe this patient and her family uh, aren't hoping for. But, uh, you know, sort of tell me a little bit more about uh, what what uh, makes me think that uh, this won't go in that direction in terms of needing to have a, a family member help clarify goals and um, you know, maybe some more open-ended uh, discussion there might kind of tease out. Um, is there potentially a misunderstanding about the condition, about what the doctors think about the prognosis? Uh, perhaps not. Perhaps everyone's on the same page, but uh, there's there's something that we need to uh, understand a little bit better to appreciate where a case like this uh, might go. Yeah. I'm seeing some responses in the chat here. I can kind of curate some of those for you, Dr. Perry. Sure. So we have uh, uh, some participants asking, uh, what does treatable mean? <laughs> uh, zeroing in on that one term, treatable. She thinks she is going to be cured, uh, is illustrative for another. Yeah. More clarity on her understanding of the disease. What is her understanding of prognosis? Yeah. Should we so, pause there? Yes, so you're getting exactly what I hoped you would get. Wonderful, smart audience. So clearly this patient believes that she will be cured, which is a huge red flag and misunderstanding to clarify. And because that's her frame of mind, it's not surprising that she might think, I'm not gonna end up in a bad situation because I'm gonna be cured. And so you're hitting on everything. It's treat and also whoever wrote what does treatable mean, these are the types of elastic terms that we seek to, to really clarify with more precision. Treatable versus curable. When people hear treatable, a lot of the times they think curable. Proactively planning for the unexpected. So 
trying to frame this as you have the clarity of mind and time now to plan for what you might want. And the unexpected could very be very well be getting in a car accident. It might not be related to the cancer. So broadening the reason for this discussion might be a way in. Does she have any prior experience with death or loss? Has she ever seen a good death or a bad death? Sometimes these are questions we can't fit in in the first conversation because it's a lot, but these are the ways that I try to draw out from people what does a good death look like? What are the sorts of situations you've seen that you would never want to be in or that you would want to be in? Next slide, please. And things change. So she comes back after having gotten six cycles of chemotherapy, but She's having difficulty gardening. She's got some peripheral neuropathy from the treatment, so she can't ride her bike. She was hospitalized for pneumonia, and her restaging scan shows that her lung mets have shrunk, but her liver mets have grown in size and number. She does tell you she's filled out an advanced directive. Her husband is her decision maker, but also her sister is as well. She's elected a full code status and life prolonging therapy. Two weeks later, you get an email from an ICU fellow saying she's acutely encephalopathic and her creatinine is doubled, so she's been admitted to the hospital for CRRT and potential intubation. Next slide, please. So when somebody comes into the ICU, right, what do we know and what do we want to know and what are your concerns? And for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over offering folks an opportunity to answer these questions, but these are the sorts of things that in a rush of it on admission, when somebody is very sick, it can be very easy to overlook these sorts of things. Um, but having the discussion early and at least her having given some thought to it is an important thing, even though she's cho made choices that may not be in her best interest if she gets sicker. Next slide, please. So when we're having these meetings, I try to begin, I try to avoid beginning by asking for the family's questions, because what we're trying to do is help them understand where is she now medically? And it's with that understanding that they can then ask more informed questions. I try not to assume that the family has gotten accurate updates because especially in the ICU, they're hearing things from so many different people and those messages might be slightly mixed. I try not to start with any descriptions of pathophysiology labs or imaging because that again takes us, it keeps us as the bird on the branch, not the bird on the mountain. And offering interventions using the frame, do you want us to do X, Y, and Z? Instead, trying to consider what interventions are reasonable to offer based on someone's condition and their articulated goals. Next slide, please. So preparing for a meeting, determining who should be there from the family and whether an interpreter would be needed and whether the patient can participate. And unfortunately, in this case, she could not. Reviewing prior goals of care documentation or advanced care planning, 
pre-meeting with everybody involved. So in this situation, oncology, primary care, and, and the ICU teams were involved, but also social workers and chaplaincy and nursing. And I'm gonna here kind of switch gears a bit and ask you to think like a writer. So when you wrote those infamous five paragraph essays when we were all in grade school, what we wanted to do was try to prove a point and try to and try to spark a conversation with the reader. So when you go into these conversations, I like to think about the two maximum three main points I would want a patient and family to hear and understand. And it is around that that we can craft our language. And meeting in a private location is important, if you can. Next slide, please. So I know a lot of my slides are somewhat text heavy and feel free to take or leave anything that might speak to you. When we clarify the purpose of the meeting, this is almost like an introductory paragraph in your five paragraph essay. What I'm hoping we can do is discuss Miss Angel's condition, answer questions you have and come up with a good plan to care for, I'm sorry, for her, not him moving forward. And when we elicit understanding, asking something along the lines of, I want to be sure we all have the same information about what's going on with her. Can you tell me your understanding of why she is so sick? Or what have all of the doctors and nurses who have been taking care of her told you thus far? And when we describe a condition, we emphasize the most important information. So here, she has metastatic breast cancer and she has organ failure. So how are we gonna marry those two? Ms. Angel has been suffering from stage four breast cancer. Her cancer has spread to her liver and because it is worsening there, her liver is failing. This is why she's confused and has a hard time communicating. Her liver failure has also taken a toll on her kidneys, which require life support in the form of dialysis. My hope is that dialysis and giving her medicines to treat her confusion will help her to become well enough to leave the ICU. But anyone with two organs failing and a diagnosis of incurable cancer is in a very dangerous situation. I'm concerned that despite my efforts to help her liver and kidneys, we may run into some serious problems. So in a few sentences, trying to put to weave together organ failure, the need for life support, the cancer diagnosis, and the short-term goal of stabilizing her to help relieve the ICU. Next slide, please. Being explicit about what constitutes recovery. So something I noticed in my training was that on rounds, we would talk with each other about presser requirements going up, this is really bad, or ventilator settings going up, this is terrible, or now she needs dialysis, that's bad. But when we talked to families, we weren't explicit about what constituted recovery or setback. So I'll often tell patients, I wanna give you my eyes, and I think it's important that you understand what we are going to think constitutes getting better and what constitutes getting sicker. The first goal is to help her get well enough to leave the ICU. That means that she would need to be more awake, interactive, and like herself. 
It also means she would need to come off of continuous dialysis, which we can only do in the ICU. It's just as important for you to know what would mean, what it would look like if she became sicker, despite being on life support. If she can't breathe on her own or she develops an infection and needs medications to keep her blood pressure normal, she may need more life support. And whenever somebody needs more rather than less life support, it means that their body is showing us it is struggling terribly. Next slide, please. Did she ever have any conversations with her oncologist? Did you as her husband ever talk with her about what sorts of treatments she might want for herself if she were to become this sick or as sick as she is now? Tell me more about Ms. Angel and her day-to-day -day life and what sort of quality of life mattered to her. These open-ended questions can really help at the beginning of an ICU stay or an admission when somebody has gotten really sick and asking their surrogate to bring the patient's voice into the room. So what do you think she would say if she were listening to our talk? Next slide, please. So her husband says, my wife is very strong. I have no doubt she will get better. I just want her to get her next cancer treatment soon. So when we use words like better and stable and improving, going back to that clarification of what better looks like and giving him that baseline is a way to go back in future conversations to what has already been established as the expectations. She has a strong Christian faith and they believe that a miracle is going to take place and he reiterates that she is a fighter, which is the sorts of things that she had also said to you in clinic. Next slide, please. So she actually started to improve on CRRT and rifaximin and lactulose. A couple days later, she was asking to watch Magic Mike and eat Cheetos, no joke. But unfortunately, two days after that, she started to become dyspneic and needed high-flow nasal cannula and intubation. And at the time, the end of the first meeting, her husband had really insisted that these measures be taken. She has Klebsiella bacteremia and her pressor requirements shoot up very quickly to leave a FED of 20, vaso of 0.04, and even epi of 5. And we can't really pull or do anything on CRRT. So the second meeting was arranged for six days into the ICU admission. Next slide, please. So something that I think is very important to explicate is to give the facts, but also what they mean. And an update has to, has to include both of those. So what I mean by that is it is a fact that she is intubated and on pressors and on CRT and very, very sick. But what does, what does that mean for somebody who's been in a car accident versus someone who's got metastatic cancer versus someone awaiting a possible transplant? So the context in which this is all unfolding means it, it ends up meaning different things to need these sorts of life supports when you've got metastatic cancer as opposed to other things. So how do we explicate that? And one way to do it is to loop back to the expectations and the language of a prior meeting. And I'll give you some language around that. And thinking about when somebody is really sick and we're having a discussion, 
what is the plan A and what's the plan B? So when I go into these conversations, the things I'm thinking about are what are the facts and the significance of the facts? What may be reversible versus irreversible in her condition? And what is the plan A that the medical teams want to recommend? And what is the plan B? And where is the room for her voice and her articulation of goals? Next slide, please. I am very sorry that we have to meet again urgently. At our last meeting, we had talked about what constitutes recovery and what is a setback. And unfortunately, she's had several serious setbacks. She has an infection in her lungs that spread to her bloodstream. This has made it hard for her lungs to function, and now she needs an additional form of life support, uh, two additional ones, a ventilator to breathe for her and medications to keep her blood pressure normal rather than too low to sustain her life. We are at a worse place than we were a few days ago, and I want to talk about next steps. So when we have ongoing conversations, we can set expectations and loop back to them and give, and by doing so, we have given the family a roadmap. Mr. Angel says, this is really bad, but the thing is, it's just an infection. And when we filled out that form, she said she wanted everything done. So that's what I want to do. And what does it doing everything mean at this point? And that's what we get into when we talk about plan A and plan B. Oncology says in the meeting that she's not a candidate for chemotherapy right now, but we can treat her if she can walk into clinic. And Mr. Angel said she will definitely walk into clinic. Next slide, please. I just want to briefly mention how difficult these conversations are during COVID in particular, when people aren't with their loved ones, when they can't kind of have that ritual of being at the bedside and cheering somebody on, and they can't see what we see when they're not able to visit. Um, this ca has caused a tremendous amount of grief in various forms, and one of the forms of grief that I observed was wanting the medical team to keep doing everything um, because that was coming from a sense of desperation and anticipatory grief. So I just wanted to mention the ways COVID has changed these conversations and made them tougher. Next slide, please. So the third meeting happens in, the, in 12 days into the ICU stay. Presser requirements and vent setters are decreasing, but she's still on a CRRT and has persistent anuria and hypotension. How would you frame these changes? How would you contextualize them in the bigger picture? Hours before the third meeting, her presser requirements shoot up. Next slide, please. So putting everything into context and in discussion during this next meeting depends on the other meetings you've had. Eliciting the family's understanding and discussing new facts and their significance. What are important things to discuss at this point? And I wonder if I might have a moment to ask for a couple audience comments on this.
Yeah, thanks, Dr. Curry. I'm seeing a couple come in before your prompt there that I'll just uh, tease up uh, while others are thinking and typing. Uh, we have a couple of comments around, um, in the first slide of the family meeting, you used the words incurable cancer and passing. Shouldn't incurability have been discussed up front or not mentioned at all? You as physician believe she has incurable cancer. The patient and family believe she has a curable cancer. And then another about, at what point is the update going to include she is dying and or we have no treatment tools to help her survive, recover? So these are very important questions and points. And part of what I'm hoping to illustrate in this case is exactly these points you're bringing up. Where are the gaps that you're noticing? What is the language that you would insert? So because this case was a real case and it unfolded in this way, that's it's not kind of the ideal case. Things that are happening here are not the things I think I or the folks answering these, asking these questions would want. And so the absence of those things is the thing to notice and think about. At this point, it is very, very late in her course. CPR hasn't been discussed. Setting realistic goals given her worsening situation has not happened. The attending and fellow in the ICU and the oncology attending had very difficult times trying to be explicit with the patient's family that she is dying and trying to navigate the answers that her husband was giving them. Because what was being posed is this is where we are and this is what it means, but what do you want us to do? And of course, when somebody has a written document saying, I want everything done, someone's loving spouse will say, so keep doing everything. And this is where the onus is on the team to clarify, what does everything mean to you? What does everything look like realistically? And how can we come to a mutual understanding of the best next steps? Next slide, please. So I am very sorry that Ms. Angel has gotten so much sicker. She needs the same amount, actually more life support than she needed a few days ago. She is dying from her cancer and the failure of her liver, kidneys, and heart. This is very hard news to hear, and we're here to support you. But when we find ourselves in this tough sort of situation, we want to go back to some of the questions we've already posed about what we should do for her, not what we can do, but what we should do for her when her body is showing us that it's at its limits. And her husband replied, well, don't some people recover from infections? How are you saying that she's definitely going to die? We believe that there is going to be a miracle. Next slide, please. So words like miracle, fighter, and everything, I think are some of the hardest terms to learn to navigate, or at least they were for me. These words mean different things to different people and they can halt conversation. So for example, when I used to hear, I want everything done, I would take that to mean anything I can do is what I should do. And I would never follow up uh, by asking, what does everything mean to you? What if everything is being done and a person is still dying? 
when you tell me you want everything done, what are you hoping that will lead to? What's the image in your mind of how your wife is going to be living if we do everything? Here's what doing everything means to our team. What constitutes a miracle for your wife? When you have that in your mind, what does it look like? What does her life look like? And asking for that sort of clarity. And approaching conversations about doing everything and awaiting a miracle with curiosity. Because it's once we ask people to kind of tell us what they're envisioning that we can kind of help take their hopes and their fears and put it into the context of what's happening right now. Can these expectations and hopes be reframed? Could a miracle be a peaceful death? Can we help someone to understand the difference between a fighting person, a person with a fighting spirit, and a body unable to withstand the effects of organ failure, a body that can't fight anymore? Next slide, please. Code status questions, which are also a very important part of these discussions, and they often get left until at somebody's really at the point where they may arrest. So I used to ask this question, if your heart stops, do you want us to do chest compressions and shocks and put you on a breathing machine? No joke, that's what I said because that's what my superiors said. And this is where context versus a vacuum and fact versus significance have to come in. So. For example, we are supporting Ms. Angel's heart, kidneys, and lungs with the best technologies possible. But if we got to the point where her heart stopped despite these efforts, CPR would not reverse the reasons her heart would stop. It would prolong her suffering and her death. If we choose to continue the life support we're doing, then if, we, if our efforts fail her and she dies, we will keep her comfortable in the dying process with pain medications and, and your presence, but we will not do CPR. It took me a long time to understand that CPR is a medical procedure that we can decide if someone's a candidate for, just like we can decide if somebody's a candidate for surgery. And I think surgeons are a good example of setting limits. They do tell us when someone's not a surgical candidate. And so learning to set these limits and boundaries is an important part of having these discussions well, and it's definitely not something that we're taught in our training, but are points of great struggle and distress for many of us. Next slide, please. So Mr. Angel hoped that his wife would wake up, come off a ventilator, and go home. That was his vision of a miracle. So it wasn't that her cancer is going to be cured and she's going to live just like she was before. He just wanted her to come home. So we discussed a time-limited trial, which in my opinion should have been discussed much earlier in this process. And we explicated again what it meant. So continuing what she's on right now but if her presser requirements rise, we would not go above where they are right now because doing that would not reverse everything she's going through. I was in this meeting and I was involved very late, but I also offered the option of comfort measures at this point and not just 
doing a time limited trial. He chose to continue support for 48 hours and chaplaincy was very involved by this point because of his strong faith and because of her strong faith. Unfortunately, 48 hours later, her presser requirements continued to go up and her acidosis worsened. And since we had established this constituted more of the active dying process, we moved to comfort care. Next slide, please. What I hope I've given you at least a taste of in this conversation is that family meetings are a procedure and they do require skill and experience and practice. Advanced care planning before a point of crisis is now more important than ever, but it's not as simple as giving someone an advanced care planning document and saying, fill it out, which is unfortunately what happened in this patient's experience in her primary care physician's office. It's saying, this is why I'm giving you these documents, and this is the context in which I want you to think about these decisions. There are different types of goals conversations depending on when we do them. And thinking of goals conversations like an essay with a structure and intention and points you want to say as you listen to people's feedback. Facts mean very little without their significance. So what it means that someone needs more life support, that's where the conversations can become truly meaningful. And curiosity about words like fighter, miracle, and everything can actually offer an insight into the mindset and understanding of patients and families and direct the conversation in a more meaningful way. And lastly, you can do this. And you're, many of you are probably doing it beautifully already. So thank you so much. And I think we hopefully have some time for questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Purry. We do have some questions in the chat that I'm happy to curate for you. I'm going to take uh, uh, the Q&A facilitator's direct, uh, discretion and ask the first question. Uh, I didn't clear this with your publisher, but I wanted to read a few lines of your book and ask you to provide comments. So uh, here goes. You write, you remind yourself that it isn't your job to erase or justify all of their suffering, but rather to see it, not to ignore it to ease it when you can, and to be there as they move through it, as it passes through like clouds in the sky. This was written well before the viral alphabet soup SARS-CoV-2 became what's better known by the condition it causes, COVID-19, and of course that global pandemic that ensued. But I'm wondering, what do you make in terms of the suffering you've seen during and caused by COVID-19 since you wrote these words? Have we been pulled farther apart due to the disparate impacts of this disease on certain families and communities, or are we more able to connect to the suffering of another? That's a great question, and, I, and I'm so glad it was asked. I think that during COVID-19, the types of suffering that we witnessed and experienced were layered and complex. So as I kind of hinted at earlier, one big thing I saw was the disruption of ritual. So having the ritual of coming to the sick bed, being with someone you love, if they die, having a funeral as you would have, as they may have wanted to have it. These are things that were taken away from us during this pandemic. 
And I think that made the suffering that I saw in the hospital that much worse. Having family meetings over Zoom where across the screen, we are all one dimensional, but we're talking about a very three dimensional live pulsing set of issues having to use a camera to help people say goodbye to their loved ones or to show them in the family meeting this is the this is the bags of fluid he's getting this is what they are this is the dialysis machine and them not being able to experience it themselves i think the suffering that caused was a lot of desperation on the part of families making decisions for people they love and a lot of conflict amongst the medical teams and within each of us about whether we were really doing what was best for people when we couldn't have their family's input and we couldn't get their input because they were so sick and so i think being with suffering meant something very different in this past year. It meant knowing and accepting my limits and easing it in a new way. It meant trying to find some peace with the fact that I am a face on a screen and the person who loves my patient is also a face on the screen. And how can I be with them in ways that may not be ideal, but are still a form of presence? I think it was just, and it continues now because we still have visitor restrictions, at least in my hospital, and having to kind of elicit from people too, what are the ways in which I can support you even though I'm a face on a screen? I think that was an important thing for me to start asking, and that was a way of acknowledging how abnormal this situation is. Thank you. Uh, I've released a few of the questions into the queue just to give folks a sense of how robust the dialogue's been in the chat. We won't get to all of them, but uh, the next question I'll ask is, I love your bird on a mountaintop versus tree branch analogy. Some of us practice at smaller facilities without a dedicated palliative care team. Yes. How can I help the team take that mountaintop survey of a patient's disease and trajectory as a bedside nurse care manager or chaplain? Wonderful question. And I think that one thing you've mentioned here about what you can do when you're not a palliative care or there's no palliative care team around is so crucial. There's this concept of primary palliative care. So the skills that we should all have around symptom management and having these discussions. And I think when you want to be the bird on the mountain, one of the really crucial skill sets is to kind of understand what is keeping different members of the team on the branch. Is there a way to help them by asking questions? And sometimes I've done it in the past by playing dumb and saying, okay, so I hear, you know, he's got really bad heart failure and now he's got kidney failure and I know we're considering dialysis. Can you help me understand for this fragile man who's 85 years old, like what do you envision dialysis doing for him? And so it's almost like having, using similar language that you would use with a patient to mine their expectations and asking it of the team gently and saying this is just for my knowledge and that can kind of the questioning can sometimes push people to be more open-minded another thing i would suggest is if you're concerned about what's happening to say hey is it possible maybe for you me and the oncologist to just get on a call 
because I really want to be sure I'm doing my part in this case to help this man, but I'm just confused about the plan. And gently doing it, I think often it works. I tell the med students in particular to play dumb all the time. <laughs> so. Well, with that, I note that we're at nine o'clock and I want to thank you, Dr. Puri, for uh, what an hour together. Thank you so much for joining us from LA uh, to share your uh, insights. Uh, I appreciate all those who are, were able to join and our partners in CTS, uh, Meeting Services, and the Heart and Vascular Institute for uh, helping us uh, uh, launch this 2021 Goldman Berlin Lectureship in Palliative Medicine. So thank you, Dr. Puri, and thank you everyone for joining. Goodbye. And if anyone wants to email me questions, that's also totally okay. I think my last slide has my contact information on it. Thank you for that. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you.